Hey guys, I'm Richard Fitzgerald. This is Dubai Works, where we interview the business leaders making a difference in this great city. That business with scalability was very interesting to me. I like building something that has legacy. The advertising world is a mix of commerce and creativity and it's the perfect manifestation of it. I used to work in the advertising industry, still do in a way, with our media business. Uh, and I always wondered how many professionals work in each city, but I'm sure it's a lot. There's so many different aspects of creative and advertising production world in Dubai. So this week and today, we're doing a special episode as Smashing Your Media Partners of the Dubai Links Festival of Creativity, which is also linked to the Cannes Line and there's big awards, there's an event in Madinat Jumeirah. Uh, so it's a three-in-one. We interview three CEOs uh, from the event. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Welcome back to another episode of Dubai Works Business Podcast. This week we're at a special at Dubai Links and we're with the CEO of The Lions, which is with Simon Cook. Welcome to the show. Thanks very much for having me. Thanks for being here. Yeah, and it's great to be here. There's lots of bubbly atmosphere around the Festival of Creativity. We'd expect nothing less. So can you tell us a little bit more about Lions and Can Lion in particular? Of course, yeah. Well, I guess it all starts with Can Lions, which is the International Festival of Creativity. And that's been running for 70 years this year. It's actually our 70th edition in 2023. And... That's important for the industry because it offers a space for the entire global industry to come together to celebrate the very best creative work in the world, but also to network, to do business, and also to build their own businesses as well off the back of it. And so the way that links to here is obviously that's good on a global level, but on a regional level, it's so important that we do something in a nuanced, in a very specific way here for this very special region. And, and so Dubai Links, as, as it is for this region, uh, you know, what, what does that mean to you as a group? Oh, it's incredibly important. It gives us an opportunity here to meet with the local community. Um, most importantly, at the, the heart of this festival you see here today is an awards or a benchmark. And that allows us to hold up the very best creative in the region, which is obviously good for the agencies, the brands, and really showcases what the region has to offer. And of course, you know, there's many uh, award winners at, at here that go on to win in Cannes each year. And there's a lot of history of creativity in the region. How do you think that merits with the rest of the world? Is it, is it unique? Is it, uh, does it match up to the talent elsewhere? Absolutely. Um, Lynx is great because it's a bit of a, a first look at what's coming through on the region and then quite often that translates to the global stage at Can Lions as well. But it's been fantastic this week to see the new work coming through and looking forward to the awards later this week to see that entire showcase. Amazing. Well, thank you for your time. I know you're busy over these couple of days. Uh, I really appreciate your time and we're enjoying the festival. Thanks for being here. Thank Thanks you. Thanks a lot. Cheers. Here we are now with Vidya Manmohan. She is the founder and chief creative officer at V for Good. I can guess where the V comes from, but I'll ask her anyway. V for Good is an in-the-row creative consortium born out of the pandemic. They focus on marketing and advertising services in the base in Dubai. So good morning. 
Thank you very much, Richard. And thanks Pleasure for joining the show, Vijay. So tell us a little bit about V for Good. Like you guessed, the V came from my name. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but no, I think it's it's almost we wanted to set up something where it's I know my sound a bit cliched, but um, you know, for for women to thrive in the industry, because as you see, I mean, I've been in, in the industry and, you know, going up the ranks and, and going through kind of all realms of the creative field across 25 years of my career. And I really understand and I value how, how much of effort and how much of passion it takes for women to actually, you know, consistently be part of the industry. And you often see that, you know, in universities, that all these girls in, you know, in advertising schools and in marketing degrees and you just don't see them after that or they are in the preliminary roles and then you see them fade out and mm. i think life kind of takes them you know washes them away and and i found that it is really really important to have all sides of the you know if you say the audience actually being a part of the industry mm. then and if we do have to cater to them so so we for good is set up. So the V actually stands for we as together. Mm. So um, again, it's about supporting talented women across the globe um, to work with women and women-owned companies or agencies or suppliers. And this is how we've been thriving and it's been over two and a half years. And I must say, we've actually been creating an agency or network of our own um, where it's, I think, I've kind of unlearned everything I've learned and we're trying to find new ways of just making sure everyone's happy in the process mm. and we do it all by our own terms but we've been absolutely agile in the process and I just heard someone talk about it on the main stage that you know um, agencies really have to learn how to deliver and not take the three month six month time I don't think anyone does that anymore but again the agility and because you have to have a conversation now. If you have it two days later, it's stale and there's no point, right? So how do we actually deliver when the time is right? Yeah. And because of this kind of an agile setup and because of all the women that we work with being so passionate about being a part of it, um, I think we've we've really been, uh, yeah, we've had some amazing happy clients uh, who've been with us throughout the process. And, and I think one great thing that again i'm not boasting about myself or the or the company or the women who work with us but you know the fact that we've not gone and pitched ourselves to a single person or client till now and they've actually found us because again i believe everyone has their piece of pie and we should not be chasing you know something we cannot sustain so uh, we've been doing it at our pace at our uh, yeah you know keeping um, ourselves comfortable and yeah I think everyone's Amazing. been happy so far. Amazing. So, so you, it's a women-led, obviously, but it's a female advertising agency. Yeah. So only females work with you in your network so, as an employees. No, I must correct that. So it's not that we only take women. Yeah. Whoever is passionate and have that fire in them and would love to be a part of the network. Yes. Um, but in network, in the sense of. Uh, they they're under the v for good umbrella when you're when you're working with clients yeah. they're the ones that do the work not as in a, a network no uh, as in the, no. their heads of other agencies that no, you represent no, no 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 okay they're they're so they're women for example uh 
I obviously won't disclose names. Uh, there's an amazing talent who couldn't be, you know, who couldn't work with a normal agency kind of lifestyle or cope with it. And unfortunately, she had to get treatment for, you know, cancer and she had to go off the grid. But then A, she couldn't come back and, and put in those kind of working hours or that kind of lifestyle. And but she still had the passion for, for doing work she's part of the network mm. or you know um there's another mom who's just delivered a baby and she's breastfeeding she's part of the network i mean we, we call ourselves a network because it yeah. is kind of like an underground network that we operate yeah but everyone is part of the network is absolutely happy being part of it because they can work the way they want um we don't have to show their faces all their time to anyone and you know we do have uh, contracts that we sign with all of them and mm. yeah Okay, amazing. So, and, yeah. and so the services that you offer in general are? All 360 marketing from, from strategy, from brand building mm. to, to content, to films, to, I mean, you name it. It's, yeah. Okay. I mean, the, the biggest brand that we work for currently is Lego, the toy brand. And yeah, we started off with a very small uh, Ramadan campaign for the region. Um, produced for lego you know that was the first time that lego ever produced local content mm. and um you know uh thanks to ula and zilla taking you know confidence in us they gave us the project and ever since and that was three years ago for ramadan and ever since we've been doing all their ramadan campaigns and bigger campaigns and we've also been doing international uh you know, work for other Lego offices around the world. Okay, so so if, if Lego, are you Lego's agency of record on nope. the creative side? No. Nope. But you do project work and yes. in this region and they, they worked with you because you can offer a unique uh, piece of work and a perspective on the region yes. uh, for that project. And, and your background, uh, was it in agency or how did you get into the advertising world originally? Ah, that's a long story. So <laughs> I actually did physics, chemistry, bio and math yeah. because I had I was planning to go for medicine. Uh, so med, med school and uh, yeah, for some strange change of luck or, or fate, uh, I happened to stumble upon a very good advertising school in uh, Bangalore in India. And for the first time I left, I mean, I was born and raised in Dubai. So that was the first oh, wow. time I actually went to India, did five years of advertising and I didn't know anything about advertising. I was just good at drawing, right? So this is another myth. So again, so one of my aunts, because I used to do oil paintings and acrylic, she was like, you're so good at this. And that was just my hobby. And she was like, you should probably try out this university. It's amazing for, and I just fell in love with the, with the university campus, it was beautiful. You could just sketch, sit around and sketch anywhere. I didn't even know what I was getting into, you know. And then eventually, yeah, five years later, I graduated uh, in commercial art, got out and I was looking for agencies. And because every six months we have to come back to Dubai to like renew your residency, I was here, I couldn't work in India, which I would have loved to. But I think the first agency that got me on board in probably because of my passion because I didn't have a portfolio to show them I had no work except you know like student work that you did in uni and um, my then boss I mean Jeremy who was one of the founders of partnership he was like would you like to join tomorrow and I was like is he kidding me like mm. this is really happening 
and that was a, I mean, that, this was the start. And I joined as a visualizer. You know, back in the days, we had all these, you know, you have to really go up the different ways of, you know, you don't just start as, as a certain thing. So visualizer, I think in my first month, I won an award, which is like Nostradamus of the 20th century, 21st century or something. Um, and yeah, which is again, I didn't even know what I was worth or what I could do in the industry. And yeah, I won that award. And I think from there on, again, I moved from being an art director, like eight, eight years in. And then uh, one of the other partners, John Money, he was like, he took me on the side and said, Pithya, you're so good with ideas. You're like churn out ideas. I think you should try your hand at copywriting. And I think that was a great switch for me. And I'm super eternally grateful to him for like, you know, uh, pu putting me to this side of the, the creative realm. And I think I, I really grew from there, you know, from, from going from being a copywriter to being senior copywriter and then uh, assistant or director and, and uh, sorry, um, CD and so on. And I think, again, I was always shy, very, you know, was never vocal about my ideas. I would always like try to find someone else to like convey my idea. Because again, it was a man man's world, right? Mm. And and it is it can be really really intimidating. But I think it was my passion for the work that I do and that actually got me through. And then I didn't I didn't think of where I am and what I'm doing. And it was all about what does the work take? Let's let's pitch it. Whether it's working late at night, whether it's working over weekends, whether it's not seeing my family for days together. I think we put it all and. I didn't think of it as, you know, again, I was married and I had a child and all of this went through it. But I think it was it was fine because I still had the passion for it. And again, my then boss, you know, when I was with partnership um, after childbirth, I was like, ah, no, you know, my passion just went down. I was like, no, there's no I can't go back because it was all about feeding the baby, taking care of the baby. And then my boss came home with his wife and. It was three months in and he's like, Pratya, what are you doing? What are you doing to yourself? I mean, you have so much in you. You should just come back to work, even if it's just two hours a day. I mean, I'm sure he knew I don't do two hours a day. <laughs> obviously, I think I... And from then on, yeah, there was no looking back. Um, and it's it's been a change, you know, again, from partnership I moved on. There were only two agencies that I really worked for. One was a partnership for like over seven or eight years. And then Gray, where I served for almost 15 years. Wow. And uh, That's a good stint yeah. in the creative agency world. Yeah. And and I, I quit, I think, being the ECD for kind of the region where I was taking care of the creative work that comes out of Qatar, Beirut, uh, Saudi and UAE, which was amazing. I mean, it was a brilliant, great experience. Yeah. And yeah, COVID hit. And again, one of the reasons for starting this off was, um, again, I didn't know how it would do. They, we had no planning. I, I didn't think of anything, but you know, I wanted to set it up and say, if I ever do anything, I want to do it for a reason, as opposed to just doing it for, you know, setting up an agency. So I think I mean I can't be I can't be um, asking for anything more. I'm really happy with the pace at which we're going or growing, and the the pace at which we're creating an, a real change and a movement where 
it is not the usual agency lifestyle or it's not the usual way agencies work yeah. or is compensated. So we're making our own ways of doing it um, as long as everyone in it are happy. Mm. And again, in a time where, you know, the mental stress and all the mental health is of, of such a big uh, importance, I think we've been doing fine in, in keeping the pressure where just about how, how much we can take it and we talk about it amongst ourselves there are days when some people can't be part of the work and and we take it out from them and yeah so far so good amazing great story so you know Vidya like I think in some parts of the world there's almost commitments or not necessarily mandates but for minority owned uh, agencies and even publishers and you know in the US it might be black owned media or in other parts it might be female owned or it might be different uh, minority owned have you benefited from that do you see that people are willing to uh, either buy a, a KPI or a commitment that they're willing to work with a female owned agency or uh, is it an advantage is it a commitment are we seeing anything like that in this region to be honest, Richard, we haven't played that card <laughs> and we don't pitch because we don't want pity and we don't want that kind of support that comes with, oh, let's try and support them because we want to be known for the work that we do and we do it God, God damn well. So yeah. you come to us if you want to get that kind of style of work done and we don't want that extra kind of you know uh, oh we want to support women yeah i don't think we need that kind of support we just need the understanding of this is how we operate and if you want to see the work that you want to see like genuine work um, because again we believe we don't just do advertising or marketing if there's no purpose behind it so we also choose the clients that we take in um so we don't take the usual way we think they're gonna burn us out or they're gonna just ask for this this and this way we're not actually contributing to them either so it's gonna be a lose-lose situation for mm. either of us so we, we're also careful of that and um, yeah no to your point uh, we haven't benefited from that but uh, yeah uh, but I wonder does it exist is is there that you know of you know from a DEI point of view are there things that, that global companies are looking at now in terms of who they work with and partners so I have heard that they do look for for people like that or companies like that but I haven't been approached by any because yeah. simply I think this is the first time I'm actually being vocal about it and saying this because I also feel I want the women who are part of the network to feel like each one of us is contributing to it and they're not like you know invisible um, and eventually someday I want their stories to come out and be told and tell the industry stories of you know real people in advertising as opposed to the ones they actually see up on stage yeah. or at award uh, functions you know so yeah this is why I'm really trying to come out and talk about it okay no and appreciate it and but in your experience from a creative talent point of view are creatives difficult to work with have you found that no, you're shaking your head. <laughs> uh, well, being a creative myself, <laughs> I don't think creatives are hard to work with. In fact, they're the most amazing souls to work with. I think because I think I am a creative myself, I just know exactly uh, how you can work with them without, you know, messing around with their um, 
mental space because yeah. it's about giving them the space they want to work within and and leaving it up to them and and then it's up to you and then keeping it transparent and you know letting them know exactly what's happening and i don't think creatives are the beast that they're made, to made out to be, be. and yeah. does that sort of help you know obviously you were sort of born out of the pandemic and there might have been remote working and you described being able to having flexible people in your network. Yeah. Uh, is that a better way to work with creative people? Uh, is that something that you think you'll continue to embrace now that we're sort of back to normal? Um, yeah, no, I think for now, yes, I do have permanent people on ground, but I, I think most of, I mean, the entire like 90% of the network is in, because I told you we work with amazing talent across the globe and mm. this is why we've been able to deliver that and and get the best talent in i don't think having physical people on ground and coming to an office and clocking you know nine to six or whatever would actually help this network thrive so at every point we're like seeing how's it going and you know do we need to change anything do we need to so i think it's about being rewarded being feeling committed and every each one of us uh, feeling uh, you know responsible and being part of the network that we're uh, that matters to us then actually having people on ground and yeah yeah and it works for you and uh, and you know but do you need a different layer of management do you need project managers do you, how do you how do you sort of manage remote workers especially in the creative space yeah so very interesting topic because um, yes it was born out of the pandemic it was all remote and during you know that that time i also did my masters in digital management out of hyper island uh, kind of known like the harvard of like digital um hmm. the digital world and we learned a lot about uh, you know prototyping and and design thinking and how do you create businesses that actually thrive and i think this was one of the and i think again i'm super grateful that luck brought all of this together and i ended up using everything that i learned in my masters into creating this company or agency right so we're actually in the process of prototyping something yeah. that will help agencies work remotely in in a very comfortable way having said that we do have um brand managers and people taking care of accounts but it's not the kind of agency type because everyone takes care of their own um you know, like we literally have creatives running the show through and through let's put oh, it that wow. way yeah that's yeah. brilliant so you don't so that's interesting it's interesting to see how that will unfold and i think you, we almost need examples like your company t to see how this can work because people are always trying to figure it out um I, I want to ask you a little bit about the region because you have a lot of experience in working in different markets what what is it like uh being a creative across you know the gulf and the, the wider mina region uh, what are the things that you need to consider and how much do you need to understand uh, behavior types and cultures etc in the work uh, again i think i'll have to talk for hours because <laughs> uh, yeah the region as much as we call it the region right and and also working for the region is a challenge in itself because dubai uae and every emirate within the uae is so different the culture is so different um, the ask is very different and so is Qatar and so is Saudi Arabia and so is uh, Beirut 
with all the challenges that's going on. So I think the thing that we do usually wrong is put everything under the main region and they also we also toss in uh, North Africa into it. Um, and this is where the challenge arises. So I think understanding the culture and nuances of every region and when a brief comes in and, and working with clients to actually tap into that, I don't think we can deliver one campaign across the region and make it work successfully across every single, um, um, what do you say, country, uh, unless it's tweaked and and you know catered to individually for every country mm. and um, again that that requires a lot of tools a lot of understanding a lot of agility to work with teams in each of those regions yeah and yeah so this is what allows us the flexibility so i mean we rolled out a campaign for lego which went across three major markets like malaysia and uh, mexico and africa and the middle east like very diverse yeah but what helped us was you know working with teams on ground on in those regions and then feeding us live while we worked to make these campaigns possible in mm. real time and everything was rolled out in like four months six between four to six months mm. where and it's massive it's a massive massive um you know product campaign so i think this is only possible if you have if you have links in all of these markets and you work in real time to make this happen. Yeah, you, you need you that network. You can't set up offices yeah. everywhere around the world. Yeah, makes yeah. sense. Interesting. If we were having this conversation 10 years ago, we'd, 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 we would be, I'd be asking you about uh, math men and mad men, but now it, the trend seems to be asked about AI. So how do, you, how do you see like, you know, creative work with technology and the evolution of, of technology and trends? Yeah. Uh, this is something I would be talking about later today, but <laughs> I think, um, and we have a big problem with talent retention, right? Mm -mm. In big agencies, uh, not with us. Uh, yeah. So the thing is, before when you when you look into talent, it's usually how good at, are, are you with your writing skills, or we look at their portfolio, or we look at the art direction, and the, but with OpenAI coming in you don't need the skill that a writer used to have then or you mm. don't need the art direction skills that the that the art directors used to have then you need people to polish them more or whatever else or to improvise on them um but i think the skills that we need we need problem solvers we need people who can understand and absorb and 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 really adapt to how they can you know come up with solutions um we need design thinkers we need people who can prototype an idea and mm. so when you present it to the client you actually know exactly what what can go wrong at every single stage so these are the kind of breed of creatives that we need for the coming yeah. years or i think even for now to make that change so maybe we're we're looking in 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 the wrong places yeah we're kind of creating the same profile and looking for them in the same way maybe we need to change the way we look for these people but you still think that the work the creative work will come through and there still is a need for that service industry around creativity absolutely creativity will never die i think mm. it's gonna move from just being stuck with advertising agencies with these creatives being a part in center a core of every other business or offering because we need these creative thinkers we need these you know out of the box thinkers or or problem solvers mm. in every single industry 
and there is a deal for that. So we need to get out there and make that change. Yeah, uh, obviously media consumption continues to evolve and change. Uh, how do you think the role of the sort of the, the cliched big idea plays now in, in marketing and branding across you know changing consumption habits? Um, so I am still a believer of having a big idea or a core idea behind anything because if there is no problem that you're solving, uh, I don't think you should be doing any work yeah. because um, you know sometimes you see just fluff coming out and like that's the brand and you know you slap a you think smart tagline to it and you think it's going to make the brand. I think people are way smarter. Where I mean, really, can anyone? you know, talk us through something like that. People are looking for something they can uh, own and be a part of, right? Mm. Um, and and they, they want their life to be shaped by the products they use or how they use it. So um, we have to be smarter than, than using media in a way where you're just pushing it out to people, mm. where it's senseless. So you'll have media reaching people, but mm. are people actually consuming it is mm. the question. So it shouldn't be that, oh, it's reached 100 million or whatever, you you know, making those tall numbers make sense for you. It should be how many of these people have changed or converted or changed behavior. Mm. And that's what we should be learning about. Okay. And, what, and you know, the, Coming to, you know, it's still the start of the year, 2023. People are still sort of figuring out what does this decade have in store. It started off with the pandemic. What's your sort of outlook in terms of, uh, you know, the the, 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 tr the world that we're living in today? Is it an optimistic one? Are you positive about the future? <laughs> so, Richard, I'm, I'm a diehard optimist. <laughs> I think, uh, and also because, yeah, I have a daughter. I want a better world for her. Yeah. I think we. I, I honestly feel you can't live being pessimist because you're like just gonna carve out a, a real sad world for you. Hmm. Um, I wake up every day wanting to do something new and to make a difference. I mean, whatever it is, and I think as good creatives, we always love to have a problem or, or an issue where you can solve and. Yeah. and try and get the world out of it so i think whether it's a pandemic whether it's ai whether it's everything like you know kind of you you feeling strangled i think we'd love to come out of it with like brilliant solutions where mm. you know you can all, always have solutions to to whatever so i think none of these would be a challenge i am super super positive about the world and i think we all have a lot to look forward to it might not be the old ways of how we lived but Let's embrace it and let's make it happen. Amazing. Brilliant note to finish on. Vidya, thanks very much for your time today and we follow V for Good Future. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you. And now we're here with Daniel Hume. He is the Chief uh, Executive Officer, CEO at Satalia, but he's also uh, the Chief AI Officer at WPP, which is a really interesting role that I want to ask about. Um, but basically, Satalia are an award-winning company that provides AI innovations for global brands. They're based in the UK. Uh, welcome to Dubai, Daniel. Thank you very much. To Dubai Links. Uh, so yeah, tell us a little bit more about Satalia. Yeah, my, my entire academic background is in artificial intelligence over the past 20 years, and I spun out um, Satalia for my PhD uh, 15 years ago. We build um, AI solutions for some of the biggest companies in the world. 
and uh, we were about 120 people before we were acquired by WPP about 18 months ago. Uh, we continue to grow Satalia inside WPP, but uh, as a chief AI office for WPP, I'm also thinking about how we use these technologies for cool instead of creepy. Mm. That's fascinating. Uh, so first of all, to, to build something out of a PhD, uh, you know, was, was that something you had in mind? And if you were studying AI 15, 20 years ago and more, uh, that's quite forward thinking. Yeah, my, my PhD actually originally was to model the brain of a bumblebee. Bumblebees have a million brain cells. Their brains can fit on the end of a needle. And bumblebees can do amazing things. They navigate 3D worlds. They talk to each other. They solve problems. They don't handle windows very well, but ultimately they're very smart creatures. And the question was, can you model a brain in a machine? Um, 18 years ago, it was impossible to model a million neurons. About 12 years ago, there was a new paradigm in this technology now called deep learning that allows us to model hundreds of millions of neurons and we can we can teach these brains to do things that humans can do which is why ai has suddenly got very exciting but uh, my company bridges two fields in academia the first is machine learning so finding patterns from data and the second is decision making you need to really combine both of these technologies to get a true power of ai and would you call was it a technology company or was it a services company it was born as a technology company, but like a lot of startups from universities, it was very early. It's still early now. I still believe that there's a, a place in the world for AI as a service. Um, but actually, we made most of our money through um, services, building innovations for companies that we then could repurpose. So I guess you would call us an asset-enabled consultancy. Okay, interesting. And 120 people is, is a lot in this space because, you know, for most people, AI is only really coming of age now and, you know, recently. But so what, what, was, what were those people doing for the last decade or so? Yeah, we, were, we were using algorithms uh, to make uh, the operations of organizations more efficient. So, for example, you know, Tesco. Tesco is one of the biggest retailers in the UK. Uh, we built um, all of their infrastructure to do last mile delivery. Now that sounds relatively boring, but actually the algorithms required to optimize vehicles, to allocate, um, to predict how long it's going to take to deliver to people's houses, etc., are, um, are phenomenally complicated. And if you can save Tesco a few seconds on each delivery, it translates to tens of millions of pounds. Uh, another example is um, PwC, the big audit, audit firm is a client of ours. Um, they have 5,000 auditors they need to allocate to work in the UK. You need to use machine learning to understand people's skills, their preferences. You need to use machine learning to understand the demand. And then you, you need to use algorithms to allocate people to that demand hmm. and maybe just give you some maths if i've got five people to allocate to five projects there are 120 possible ways to allocate five people to five projects five times four times three times two times one <laughs> if i've got 15 people to allocate to 15 projects i now have a trillion ways if i've got 60 people to allocate to 60 projects there are now more ways than there are atoms in the universe these problems get ugly very very quickly human beings tend to solve them actually you need to build algorithms to solve them incredibly efficiently that's amazing. So the, the roles, the people, you know, when I hear of tech companies, like we have, um, we have a super app in the region called Kareem that Uber acquired. And uh, we, we know that they hire people to manage a lot of that data, like data scientists. Is that what you were employing? Yes and no. Uh, so I would argue that companies over the past five years have been hiring data scientists to solve decision problems, and it's the wrong set of skills. So um, 
decision problems are some allocation of resource, like I've just mentioned, routing vehicles, allocating people to jobs, figuring out what channels to put your marketing money down. These are decision problems. And actually, it's a completely different set of skills to, uh, to machine learning, to data science. Data scientists are very good at finding patterns, finding insights from data. But the, the assumption is by extracting insights from data and giving those insights to human beings, they're able to make better decisions and they can't. Mm. So actually, for four, four years, I ran a master's program in UCL in applied AI, where I trained hundreds of students, uh, hundreds of master's students every year in data science. <laughs> as, as I said, those students have gone out there employed by industry and the industry don't understand they have optimization problems, they don't have mm. data science problems. And I think that over the next five years, they're going to wake up and realize they've been hiring the wrong people to solve the wrong problems. And what people should they be hiring? Optimization What's... experts. So okay. they used to be called uh, operations researchers mm. uh, 20 years ago. Um, everybody got excited about machine learning because of these new advances. Uh, but um, operations researchers or discrete mathematicians or optimization experts, they're typically found in Germanic countries, in Australia, in Brazil. There's still a few pockets around the world where universities have invested still mm. into those technologies. I would always advocate companies need to solve their decision problem first before even thinking about hiring data scientists. Fascinating. Uh, and, you know, when you were describing that sort of the, the work that you did with Tesco, I was thinking of like Emirates Airline and, and when you did that analogy of the, the multiples of, of resources. And, and so did they know that they were managing uh, 30 or 60,000 people, uh, the resources in that way? Were they calling it AI over yeah, the last decade? So, so not, not, not really. I think that unfortunately, almost any new advances in our algorithms are being referred to as AI. And uh, one of the things I'll talk about today here at Dubai Links is um, helping people understand what AI is and isn't. Um, actually, lots of different things have, have coalesced over the past decade, data, um, uh, cloud computing, new advances in algorithms that allow us to do really interesting things in, in industry. So anything that really touches data now that's algorithmic, they call AI, which I think is silly, but um, but uh, but yes, in, 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 in summary, uh, what those uh, algorithms are, are, are decision-making algorithms or AI algorithms. Okay, and Daniel, what's what was the what's it like working on the WPP? Uh, well, first of all, what was the acquisition like, and was that something that that you thought you, uh, Satalia might end up in? I actually wasn't in the uh, market to be acquired. Um, we'd been working with uh, uh, Wonderman Thompson, um, a WP uh, agency, for some years on um, combining our logistic solutions with e-commerce uh, for companies like DFS, which is a big furniture company in the UK, um, and uh, we were looking actually raising some capital first first time to raise some capital into some of these assets that we had built um, actually VCs didn't really understand our business model, but then a handful of companies were in, in, interested in buying us. Uh, there are lots of synergies with WPP. Not only we do we augment our logistics capability with e-commerce, um, we're WPP's deep mind, so we're now um, advancing um, uh, generative AI inside WPP. We take AI to their clients, and of course WPP is 120,000 people that we can allocate more effectively using um, artificial intelligence algorithms. So there's lots of synergies um, with regards to working with WPP and it's been a fantastic journey so far. I love working there. That's amazing. Um, I, I also used to work with WPP in, in the 
Group M sort of media agency space, but I, I know how, how big it is. And, I, you know, a, a chief AI officer to go across that group must be very demanding. Or how do you how do you do that as well as running the company? It is. Uh, fortunately, WPP have been incredibly embracing of my role. So many, many people come to me across the group to um, ask my advice and, and guidance. Uh, there are thousands of um, um, people capable of developing AI across the group. And actually, one of my biggest challenges, as you say, is to map that capability and figure out how to steer WPP to using these technologies uh, to, to advance the organization. Uh, but it's a phenomenal resource to tap into, and it's a, it's an interesting challenge to coordinate it. Are they more focused now, Daniel, on, you know, as you said, uh, coordinating their own resources rather than doing what you're doing and offering it to their clients? Actually, we're, we're doing um, resource allocation for clients as well. So um, anybody that's got a sizable marketing, marketing team, um, we're, what we actually do is we, we create a digital representation of a marketer. So I use their digital footprint to essentially create, create a digital twin of that person. And then we can interrogate that twin and say, if you work on this project, will you thrive in your career? If you work in this team, will you work well with this team? So, um, so we use, uh, so we're actually applying our skills to marketing teams, both inside WPP and outside. We're, uh, as I said, advancing generative AI technologies. Group M is obviously a great example of um, multi-channel buying uh, and how do you then push media across those channels to maximize your goals, which is a classic optimization problem. Um, so there are lots and lots of areas that we can apply these technologies to, to improve WPP. Interesting. And do you work independently? I Do you pitch for business as a standalone entity or are you part of the you know, if one of WPP's media agencies or creative agencies are up for a global pitch, will, will they will you in <laughs> to yeah, win the pitch? Exactly, both. Um, so we, we win work um, ourselves um, through helping companies build AI innovations. Uh, we win work through um, the op opcos, so standing side by side with them. Um, yeah, so, so both. So both. And what's your view of the region? Have you had any uh, briefs that you've worked on in this region? And is it your first time here? So I, I historically came to Dubai quite a lot, but um, I did a talk recently at Leap in Saudi. Oh, yeah. Um, and that actually generated quite a lot of interest um, for the region. So it feels like the region really wants to start to invest in these technologies. I think that they're looking towards the West because of their talent and capability and all of the learnings over the past five years of where companies have got it right and got it wrong. Mm. So I think that what I want to do is leverage that knowledge from the West and bring it here yeah i was listening to a podcast with an american author who wrote a book in the early 90s and he's he's um credited with coining the term the metaverse and uh when he, he in the podcast he, he he mentioned the date that mark zuckerberg changed the name of his company and he said for the following year all he's been doing is interviews right so he said so before he writes his next book he's just been so in demand right and it feels like there's a bit of that in ai at the moment are you do you have a lot of requests because people it's a hot topic yeah, I think that the metaverse, unfortunately, had a, a huge amount of hype and, and, it, and it we're quite some time away from realizing it because you need to set up all of the infrastructure, uh, make it accessible for everybody to really leverage the power of the metaverse. AI is completely different. You can leverage the power of AI tomorrow. Yeah. Um, and so I don't believe that these technologies are going away. I, th I think there's a lot of hype around them or a lot of at least misunderstanding about how you apply these technologies to solving problems in business. But those companies that get it right are the ones that are going to, to totally thrive. Uh, they, they say that this is going to be the year of AI, but I think what we'll find over the next several years, more and more exponential advances in, in technologies like ChatGPT that's really going to surprise people. 
And, and what, are, what, are you, what are the misinterpretations or the misunderstandings? What are the blatant things that people are just not figuring out? So the, the popular definition of, of AI is getting computers to do things that humans can do. H humans are bounded by our intelligence. We, we can find patterns in about four dimensions. We can solve problems without seven, seven moving parts or seven people allocating people to jobs. Computers can find patterns in thousands of dimensions. They can solve problems with thousands of moving parts. Benchmarking machines against humans is a very, very, very silly thing to do. The reason why we've got excited about this is because over the past decade, we've managed to get machines to do things that humans can do, recognize objects and images, correspond in natural language. And when we get machines to do things that humans can do, then we assume that that's intelligence because because humans are the most intelligent thing we know in the universe. I would argue humans are not intelligent. We've been building machines that are significantly more intelligent than human beings for 50, 60 years. There's actually a much better definition of AI, um, which is um, which comes from a definition of, of intelligence. So it's goal-directed adaptive behavior. Uh, goal-directed in the sense you're trying to achieve an objective, you're trying to spend your medium money to maximize yields, you're trying to route your vehicles to maximize deliveries. Um, behavior is how quickly you can answer that question. And if you choose the wrong algorithm, it will take gazillions of years. If you choose the right algorithm, it will take milliseconds. Hmm. So choosing the right algorithm to answer your goal uh, is critically important. But the key words are adaptive, goal-directed adaptive behavior. What you want to do is build systems that can make decisions, learn from them, and adapt themselves so that next time they make better decisions. And again, if I was being brutally honest, you don't really see adaptive systems in production. So even to that definition, nobody's really doing AI. Hmm. That's why I like to use these six categories that I've been developing over the past several years to look at AI, not through definitions but through the applications that have emerged over the past decade and what are the categories the, the categories are um basic task automation so the task automation is op often uh, uh uh um the, the ai community turned their nose up to it but but you can use very very simple algorithms um to essentially replace a large amount of of, of automate of tasks that human d that do uh, whether it be clicking on websites or or reading documents you, you can you can use very simple algorithms to, to replace that human being and actually save a lot of money in an organization so that's the first category the second category is generative ai so you can use tools to augment creativity through text through video to, through um through images etc so creating content very very quickly augmenting the creative process the third category is is the humanization of ai and what i mean by that is replacing the human that's the interface with something that looks and behaves very very similar to a human being and actually but by the way these categories a robot <laughs> well yeah it could be a robot could be an avatar but the, these mm. questions these these different categories raise different ethical questions social questions safety governance questions the fourth category is i guess extracting complex insights from data that's machine learning that's what everybody's excited about and i would argue is misinvestment so we can get we can get ai machine learning to extract insights about the world, explain how the world works so that we can then uh, make better decisions. Uh, it turns out humans don't make better decisions. The fifth <laughs> category is complex decision-making. So going back to this concept of optimization uh, that matured in academia several years ago. And the final category is um, the augmentation of your physical self with exoskeletons, with robotics, with cybernetics, or, or your digital self with your your, your, um, your digital twin in the, in the metaverse. Mm. So those actually, are the, I think, are the six categories mm. of applications of AI. And as I said, each one raised different um, ethical, social safety questions. It's it just shows the depth of it. It's like six industries, separate industries. Indeed, you know. <laughs> yeah, and I guess at the moment there's a lot of hype around one of them, generative yeah. AI. But the yeah. reality is that those are building blocks, and if you can combine them in the right way, you can really move the needle for organisations. It's fascinating. So going back to the WPP part, because we are at a creative advertising 
industry. It sounds like even the work that you're doing there is a lot more to do with infrastructure and uh, resource management and things like that, not necessarily the creative part. Yeah, no, sorry, sorry it's not, not, not true. So I guess there, there were five reasons for the acquisition. Yeah. The first reason was to augment our logistics capability, our supply chain capability with Wunderman Thompson, who do e-commerce and websites and all that kind of stuff, digital yeah. transformation. The second was uh, um, workforce optimization, so solving workforce allocation inside WPP. Turns out we can also take that to clients. The third category was um, uh, building um, new technologies and tools to enable WPP, WPP to operate more effectively using generative AI, um, using optimization algorithms. So uh, the, the, the fourth category is taking AI to clients, so working with the opcos and augmenting um, what you know, AKQA build apps for clients and we yeah. can then introduce um, and interject AI into those apps. And the fifth category really is as chief AI officer, I've got to think about the position uh, and policies that that hold WPP accountable to using these technologies, but can also hold our partners and clients and even brands accountable to making sure that we're using these technologies for good. Fascinating. And on that last category, uh, where are they? Is it part of their governance already? Is it part of the... You know, in WPP, all those 120,000 employees have to do an annual governance and I forget what it's called, but it's, uh, uh, but is, is AI and, and the things that, you know, the questions it poses around ethics, around decision making, around uh, ownership and many things, is that part of, have they figured out? Uh, it, it's extremely difficult to do with 120,000 people, as you can imagine. But the reason why I joined WPP is the, the aspiration, the intent of the leadership across WPP is to use these technologies for good. Of course, these technologies can understand people's behaviors, understand their biases, etc. And in, in some respects, marketing can exploit those behaviors and biases. But what I've seen and, and, and been exposed to across WPP is they think very, very carefully about using these technologies technologies uh, they think very very ethically and uh, and actually what they should be doing is is taking those frameworks and thinking and and, and amplifying and making sure that the rest of the world adhere to them used well do you think ai could be the uh, a catalyst to sort of uh you know entities like wpb uh, re-emerging in terms of you know bluntly like market capital and the value of of what a an organization that size can be is is ai the most exciting thing that's come about for them well i, I think that it will absolutely augment the creative process it's going to accelerate the production the activation of content is going to aid creatives to come up with new ideas in ways that we've never been able to, to, to do before. Um, if you look at the recent earnings report from Mark Reed, um, it's quoted in the media that AI is absolutely fundamental to the future of WPP. But has he actually been able to allocate, has he been able to say that it's contributing already to revenues? Well, I can say we are because we uh, because Satalia has been building and contributing to those revenues. And wow. I guess, you know, very hats off to the leadership. We were acquired 18 months ago and you can imagine that that, that process was started several years before mm. so they've been thinking about this for a very long time a long time Mas amazing do you think you would have got a better price if you sold today ah maybe <laughs> <laughs> uh, i uh, we it was a very very healthy acquisition it was a yeah. very fair acquisition and uh, and i guess uh, i have a a platform now to really make a bigger impact um, and, and that's why i'm passionate about and of course you know in terms of mna wpp have decades of experience of bringing different types of uh, organizations together and allowing them run the, with their same brand, etc. And you mentioned AKQA, you know, 
10 years ago, that was the big acquisition and that was the leading edge of uh, digital innovation. And now there's, uh, you know, now there's an AI version of that. So it's, it's you know, they've got precedent for this, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. It's, uh, and, and, and it's complexity is a double-edged sword. Um, uh, complexity is sometimes a little bit confusing for brands, customers to understand what we offer. But the fact is, is that we have a huge plethora of offerings um, that um, augment and interact and complement each other. Mm. Uh, and, I, and I think that, that, that WPP is going through a process of simplification to make sure that message does land, but at the same time, making sure that we can deliver bleeding-edge solutions to our clients. Yeah. Brilliant. Going back, I know I'm jumping around, going back a little bit on the governance and the regulation part of AI. Uh, Elon Musk spoke at the World Government Summit in Dubai a month ago, and he mentioned the dangers of this as he does. Uh, do you think that certain countries and certain regions can, you know, get a foothold of this in terms of regulation? They can go faster than others. And do you see that happening? Yeah, right. I mean, the countries without regulation, of course, can experiment and um, yeah, make mistakes. Uh, whereas uh, obviously companies with regulation have to be very, very careful. So, so yes. Um, uh, but at the same time, I think that talent uh, wants to work with organisations that are using these technologies for for good. Mm. And uh, and I think that we'll see that organisations that have a strong purpose, but will attract customers, will attract talent, and, mm. and that means using these technologies um, to to make the world better. And actually, I believe it's the collective purpose of of all of these uh, enterprises that will make the world better. I don't think. That anybody knows what the future looks like. I think that uh, that you got the, the people out there saying that there's going to be no jobs. You've got people out there saying that it's all going to be fine. But I, I think that it's within our gift to make that future a, a reality. Yeah, you know, if someone says to you if they meet you for the first time, if they say, "Oh, AI is going to take our jobs," what's your initial reaction? Well, so I think that in the next um, next decade, it's just going to see a Cambrian explosion of using these technologies for um, for all sorts of creative things. I, I think that anybody that kind of predicts what the world's going to be like beyond ten years. Yeah. doesn't know what they're talking about but the point is is that it's within our gift to create that world it's within our gift to use these technologies to work with organizations that want to make the world better fascinating um it's, uh, could listen could ask lots of questions on this but i'm just conscious of the dubai works business podcast listeners are generally uh, people who've uh, set up a business in dubai and uh, a lot of them will be entrepreneurs. They'll be so busy with their day-to-day -day business. They'll have heard of ChatGPT in the news, but they probably won't have done anything about it. What would your advice be to them in the year ahead? Do they allocate budget to it? Do they go do a course? Do they experiment? Do they do a stunt PR? Like, what, what should they do? Yeah, I think play with it. Um, uh, and uh, a bit like in the metaverse, I, I think that it would be unwise for any organization to go all in. But the metaverse will come. Uh, and AI is, in some respects, almost here. So I think that, that, that understanding it and how it's going to impact your business, how it's going to impact the world, preparing you for that, that future is, is very important. So experiment with it in terms of you allocate some time and resources, yeah. opportunity costs associated with that, but that's what they should do. Otherwise, they're going to get... Uh, wiped out. <laughs> I, th I think so. I think you know, it depends on on, on the size of the startup. I, I advise a lot of startups, and I think depend on the nature of your business. You sometimes just need to be razor focused and and don't let this other stuff di uh, um, distract you. Um, if you feel that these technologies might change the nature of your business over the next three four years, then I think it's worthwhile playing with them, or at least surround yourself with advisors that can help you navigate that space. Amazing, like a, a big 
global services company, something like that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and are you going to be spending time with some of their network agencies in the, in the UAE when you're here? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. We're looking to to grow our um our, our both our talent base and also our client base out here. So if anybody wants to reach out, I'm um, uh, connect with me. Amazing, brilliant listening to you. It's been really topical. We haven't had an AI expert on this year, so I'm glad we spoke to you. Super. Thanks. Thanks, Daniel. So that's the second time we've done a live podcast at an event that we've been meeting partnerships with Smashing in the last few weeks, first at Step and now at Lynx. And we thought to put three together and I hope you enjoyed the episode uh, for the AI conversation. I found a lot of it that difficult to understand while interviewing. So maybe I'll have to listen back with a notepad, but there's a lot of value in there, hopefully. And we'll, it's a topic we'll be re- revisiting in the future, I'm sure. Thank you to our team on site who helped produce all our setup and all our interviews at Dubai Links, especially Richie, our videographer, and Shahira, producer, back in studio, uh, Ali Baba, Ali Khalil, who produce and edit all these episodes, and the content team as well, uh, and also the marketing team, uh, Rade, Mahira, uh, uh, who helped uh, put together the Smashy uh, presence at Dubai Links. Uh, as usual, uh, you can watch it on Smashy.tv on the smart TV apps, or you can listen on any Audible audio app. Uh, we will resume our normal frequency of one per week this Friday. Uh, so looking forward uh, to having you back then.